Chapter Fourteen of Left to Themselves by Edward Arrhenius Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Donald Cummings. Chapter Fourteen: Allies. The question concluding the preceding chapter of this history took more than a moment or so to answer, as the reader may suppose. Open-mouthed, as well as open-eared, were their packages one by one dropped heedlessly in the grassy path that led up from the little dock, Obed Probasco and Loretta his wife halted before Philip, still ejaculating, questioning, and with their astonishment of one kind giving place to that of another, as Philip proceeded with his story. He leaned against the fence, and, talking now with one, now the other, related his strange experience. The amazed New England couple turned and looked into each other's eyes at every few sentences, with many a my gracious me did ever anybody hear the like you don't mean that you did so and so and by obed's frequent while well, this beats all creation fur as i know it even touchstone's anxiety and their curiosity as to gerald could not retard their eagerness to learn all the facts the couple bore every appearance of homely thrift and simplicity of character of being in short precisely the kind of people touchstone had hoped it is, perhaps, needless to say that Philip's narrative was only of the circumstances since the hour of departure from the old province. Mr. Belmont and his persecution he left till a more convenient season. "'And you mean to tell me that that poor boy and you have been shut up here two days? No other soul about the place? And he's sick on your hands half the time?' gasped the distressed Mrs. Obit. "'That's just what I mean,' replied Touchstone never heard such an astonishing story in my life repeated probasco what would you have done though if you hadn't brought up hair well it stumps me that's all the hand of the lord's in it no mistake declared mrs obed i can't say how welcome you've been to anything and to everything of ours that the old house there's got inside it you couldn't have better pleased me and my husband here mr tombstone i mean mr touchstone I believe you said that was your name, didn't you? Then but just making free of every blessed corner of it. But dear, dear, if I'd only been to home. Yes, it's queer luck. Wife and I both been over on shore. We had to go across to Chantico to a funeral of a nephew of ours that died very sudden. We stuck fast there by my being sick. The very time that such a thing as this came straight up to our doors. Queer luck repeated the farmer's wife. "'You'd better just say queer providence, Obed. It's been awful unhandy for you, Mr. Touchstone. Made things so much harder for you and the little boy. But I guess if providence could save you both being dashed overboard with those poor souls in that boat, he could help you to get along with a lot of my stale stuff to eat, and not a hand to help you to anything better. Our house wide open, was it? Well, I don't know where you'd a got in if t been us left at last. But, she continued, turning in sudden vexation to her husband, that's the very identical good-bye time old Murtagle play us such a trick. After all his straight-up-and-down promises that he'd never leave the place one minute. And the cow, too. Yes, I've had enough of Murtag, assented the farmer sharply. And I guess we'll find the obligations on our side, sir. Murtag's a man we've had on the place to help us, 
and he don't appear to have no more responsibleness than a grasshopper, let alone his drinkin'. Wife and I've been in a worry the whole time we was obliged to stay across the strait, but we didn't look for his actin' this way. It appeared that the derelict Murtag had indeed been left in charge by his master, and that that neglectful hireling of the household must have scarcely waited for his employer's backs to be turned than he had betaken himself to his own little skiff and gone off shoreward too, most likely on one of his high old sprees surmised the exasperated farmer. This is the end of Pat Murtag's working for me. Well, come, come, don't let's stand another minute here, said Mrs. Probosco, realizing that the necessary explanations on both sides were finished. That boy you got with you mustn't be left alone. Perhaps he's not so sick as you think. I hope he's been asleep while we've been putting you through such a long catechism. Let's all hurry to make up for it. Oh, it don't you rattle like eight? and do you take off your boots before you get to the kitchen door. Thank you, Mr. Touchstone. Let them things lie just where they be. There's nobody to steal em, you know. Come along quick, both of you. Leaving Obed to deprive his feet of their squeaky new coverings, Philip and Mrs. Probosco stepped lightly toward the kitchen, and on tiptoe drew near the bedroom door. Sure enough, Gerald's slumber was profound. The kind-hearted woman followed Touchstone to the bedside in curiosity and pity, she beheld the face of this other of her two uninvited guests, with a great stir in her motherly heart and a quick admiration of Gerald's strange and just now singularly pathetic beauty. With a woman's soft fingers she ventured to touch his skin, and with an intent ear she listened to the sleeper's breathing. "'He's better than he was, I guess,' she said in a hushed voice to Philip. "'His skin's damp, and he breathes in a good deal healthier way than I expected.' Fever's going down as soon as it came up, I dare say. How handsome he is! A regular picture. From New York, did you say? Obed looked in at the door in anxious interest. You stay here with him while I fly around and get things sort of settled, and more ready for whatever's best for us to do. She glided out, closing the door after her. Smothered sounds, that now and then came from behind it, hinted to Philip as he sat that the flying around had begun to some purpose. Excellent, Mrs. Probosco. Whatever may have been the sentiments of your housekeeper's heart at such a delayed homecoming and such a finding of your entire domestic establishment taken possession of by boys, and not only an asylum but a hospital all at once on your hands, whatever the amusement or vexation at the general upsetting of order on each side, you kept it all to yourself. She darted softly about. Time enough for talk by and by, she said sharply to Obed who was accustomed to act pretty much as she commanded. Then we'll talk. We know plenty to start right at. We must just take care of these boys as well as we can, till they're ready to leave us and go ahead on their journey. And by the way, Mr. Touchstone says they ought to get some sort of word to their friends right away, just as soon as we see how that boy is when he wakes. Of course they ought. So I advise you, after you've been over the place, done up all those chores old Murtag kindly left for you to get that boat ready for early tomorrow morning when you can hurry over to Chantico. Obed hastened off, his Sunday go-to-meeting clothes exchanged for his everyday array, and disappeared down the garden with the chickens trooping after him in joyful expectancy. Mrs. Probosco kept at work, now and then slipping in to consult Touchtone or calling him to her. Daylight began to wane. 
Gerald slept on, occasionally appearing to be just on the point of awakening, but always drifting back into sounder sleep again. Numerous, and with many hurried and whispered paragraphs of further explanation and questions and answers, were the interviews between Philip and his bustling hostess during the remnant of time before candlelight. With its windows and doors wide open, and the smell of supper coming appetizingly from the kitchen, and with his general sense of human occupation about it, the old dwelling was already like a different place from its former mysterious self. The dog. You will call him Towser, but his real name's Jock, Mrs. Probasco protested. Tried it about. Upper rooms were unsealed, and Touchstone stared about them, meeting nothing to excite his curiosity except one or two quaint and battered pieces of furniture that seemed in keeping with the old house rather than any modern inmates. And before long came history, bit by bit, from Mrs. Probasco or Obed. As Philip had expected, the farm and premises on Chantico Island were not owned, but rented by them, had been so for many years, through an agent. The dignified, isolated old dwelling, half farmhouse, half mansion, still belonged in a family line once distinguished in the county for wealth and social position, the Jennisons. Other people might live in it, but it was always haunted by the atmosphere of stately earlier days and aristocratic occupants. Who were, or had been, the Jennisons? Great had they been once, in that part of the state. Early Jennisons had bought the island and named it Jennison's Island, in revolutionary days. One famous grandfather had built the mansion and fitted it with fine old-fashioned furnishings, and loved it, and lived and died in it. In his day this ancient roof had sheltered many a guest the famous name. Under it gay levies had come off and sumptuous dinners, and country merry-makings, and lively weddings, and solemn funerals. Two of the bells in the family line had been the very Mary Abigail and Sarah Amanda, who had stitched those yellowed samplers on the wall. They had died, grandmothers both, long ago. And of all the Jennison estate was left today only this single lonely corner of it, the island, its very name changed on the government maps by some state maneuver. Furthermore, to bear the family name and own the scattered remnants of this world's goods left to its credit, there was only a single representative, one Wentworth Jennison, according to Mrs. Probasco's reserved account, an erratic and wandering man, who seldom set his foot near the home of his ancestors, once or twice a year, perhaps, then not again for another two or three seasons. He allowed an old lawyer at Chantico to lease island, farm, and house to the Probascos. They paid their modest rent and kept the mansion from destruction. They had long been its tenants. Of course, the connection between these details became clearer in his later talks with the good farmer's wife, but Philip gathered enough in her scraps of explanation that afternoon and evening to interest his boyish love of romance and novelty and to fill his heart with gratitude for this hospitable situation. Just before supper-time Gerald awoke. Philip! he called. Philip, where have you gone? Touchstone hastened in from the kitchen. A few sentences with the sick boy gave him a delightful sense of relief. It was quite confirmed during the next half hour. Gerald's fever had almost departed. He was told the good news of the Probasco's return. On the first sight of his sympathetic hostess he took to her, so she expressed it, as if we'd never done nothing but spent our whole lives in this same old house. 
Obed was permitted by his vigilant spouse to come in and hold the boy's slender hand in his for a few moments, and speak his few kindly words of welcome and help. The invalid's appetite that had developed was rewarded with a dainty supper, and he was made comfortable in fresh sheets. "'Oh, I guess he's all right, and doing splendidly, Mr. Touchstone,' Mrs. Probosco declared. "'We won't give him a chance to get real sick, between us.' "'What kind people they are!' said Gerald softly to Touchstone, just as he was dropping off into a fresh doze, with the clink of Mrs. Probosco's dishes and the murmur of her conference with Obed making a homely lullaby from the adjoining room. "'Yes, the kindest sort,' assented Touchstone. "'Go to sleep, old man, and dream about them, and everything else that is pleasant. I'll add a postscript to these letters to bring them down to the latest minute.' "'Oh, yes, now you can.' Did you write Papa? I've written Papa and everybody. Mr. Probosco is going to get up early tomorrow morning and either take me over with these to Chantico or else carry them alone. So, you see, we are fairly started toward getting back to civilization and our friends again. The suspense all around will soon be over. We've been through a good deal together, haven't we? And in such a little while. We certainly have said touchstone half seriously half smiling gerald slept philip added a few lines to his letters and now that their situation was so happily determined his anxiety for their being dispatched came upon him with double force not an hour longer must needlessly intervene it was impossible for him to guess what conclusion mr marcy and gerald's father could have or could not have arrived at by this According to Prosco's account, there had been plenty in all the newspapers about the steamer. Folks had done nothing else but read and talk about it, although Obed's plaguy turn of the lust sort of rheumatism had kept himself, his wife, and their Chantico relatives in too much excitement for reading news, to say nothing of the funeral at the house. In his last writing, Philip told Mr. Marcy and Mr. Saxton that within as few hours as possible for Gerald and himself to leave the Probosco's, they would go to Chantico and thence down to Knoxport. There they would wait for instructions from one or the other gentleman. In view of the absolute ignorance of affairs, it seemed to Philip unwise to hurry straight back to New York by railroad, and much less advisable to think of continuing their Halifax journey, of course. There was a chance, too, that at this very minute Mr. Saxton, Mr. Marcy, or both were lingering in Knoxport, hoping for news from some quarter unwilling to quit the point nearest to the late accident. Fortunately, he did not know that a body declared to be his own, drowned and disfigured, had been duly identified days before by a coroner's jury, and that the fate of the boat had been decided by every opinion brought to bear on it, and that, while he sat there writing, Mr. Marcy, with as heavy a heart as a man can ever bear in his breast, was packing his own and Mr. Saxton's valises and preparing to fairly drag away the distracted father from the Knoxport house on the journey that he hoped might quiet his friend's nerves, and for which Marcy had generously suspended all his own affairs. The letters sealed, Philip felt more at rest. As the evening wore on, more excited than tired, he and Mrs. Probosco and Obed sat within earshot of the sick-room. In low voices they went into new particulars on both sides discussed his plans for himself and Gerald together, and weighed this and that. Hospitable, shrewd, warm-hearted folk. 
Could you and your charge, Philip, have fallen into more tender or more willing hands? How interested they became in the life at the Yasakasi that had made this friendship begin, and in the thousand little or greater incidents which had perfected it and so suddenly laid such responsibilities on Touchstone's shoulders. How carefully both, the man by silence, the good woman by tactful turns of the conversation, avoided intruding on matters that they surely would have relished understanding better, but into which they would not pry. It seemed beautiful to Mrs. Probasco's inmost heart, which one already will have divined was nothing like as unromantic as her features, this friendship between these two lads, this devotion of the elder lad to the younger. "'There was never anything prettier than the way you and him have been keeping together,' she ventured once to remark, ungrammatically but earnestly. "'It's like a book.' "'But there never was anybody else like Gerald, in or out of a book,' Touchstone answered, simply, blushing. For if facts were on his lips, his inner sentiments, as a general thing, were not. "'Well, I only hope that you have a long life together, without no kind of quarrels between you.' "'Nor troubles after these, my lad,' said Obed, stroking the dog's head as Towser lay beside his chair. "'You've begun to make friendship the way it ought to be made, and as it's grown older it ought to be of a kind that ain't common in this part of the world, so far as I've had opportunity to judge.' "'I hope so, too,' responded Touchstone soberly. "'Yes, and he believed it.' His old head on young shoulders, for one moment pictured in flashing succession years to come at Gerald's side, himself his best friend ever, to companion and to care for him. Or would the future bring differences, quarrels, a breaking apart for them, and only thorns from this now newly planted vineyard, as happened to so many other pairs of friends in this strange world? Only fate knew, and only time could decide. Bed hour came. Philip proposed to hold to his lounge, so it was more comfortably made up for rest under Mrs. Probasco's care than before. Obed was to start for Chantico after the early breakfast. At first Philip decided that it was best he should go with him, but he concluded to curb his impatience and not be absent all day from Gerald. The letters and telegrams lay ready to be forwarded. Obed understood precisely what he was to do. They said good night. Philip lay awake a half-hour or so. He was restless. Uncertainty after uncertainty, and step by step of the unsolved equation of Gerald's and his situation, filled his brain. He thought and planned, and heard the wind that had all at once risen blow furiously about the house. His final thought was that it had begun to rain pretty hard. But his dismay, and that of the Proboscos when they met the next morning, cannot briefly be described. A great gale was raging. The sea was a wild, mad, terrible creature, heaving itself in a black tumult in the drenching and cold storm. The channel between the island and the vanished coast was a raging body of water that no ordinary boat could safely hope to traverse. It was not a storm, but an equinoctial tempest. Obed, with as much regret as honesty, declared he could not think of attempting a passage to Chantico letters telegrams every sort of communication must wait until the elements lulled another day lost cried philip to himself impatiently he walked up and down gerald's room in chafing impotent anxiety 
Gerald was so much better that Mrs. Probosco declared danger from further illness ended. He roved languidly about the house with the farmer's wife, in more contentment than Philip had hoped the boy could be kept in, but it made his own concern come home to him heavily. Obed and he counseled and watched the sea in the storm. There was nothing else to do. The gale's fury increased in the afternoon, and, worse still, the coming of the early and deep darkness of the evening found it undiminished in violence. End of chapter 14